We're all familiar with the idea and the importance of persevering in physical things. If we're not careful, we can forget about the importance of persevering in spiritual things. And this is particularly true in our faithfulness to Jesus. You know, we're in a, a daily fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, they're doing all they can to convince us to give up in our service and our devotion to Jesus. We, Most of us probably feel like we are beaten up on a regular basis. Um, the only way we can maintain our faithfulness to the end and gain the reward Jesus has promised to give us is to keep our eyes on the prize and, and just simply refuse to give up, to push back or to push back and keep going and, and never give in. But the Bible gives us warnings and examples of people who didn't do this. People who turned and looked back, turned and went back and didn't follow through and finish well. And what we're going to do tonight is, is look at three examples. Three examples of people uh, out of God's Word who, who looked back, who went back, who turned back. And, and so we can learn from their example that we can push forward to the end. So first example is Lot's wife who looked back. Turn to Luke chapter 17. And we're kind of going to go all over the place tonight. Luke 17 and verse 32, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Now, if that's the only verse we have, and that's all we were looking at, that would be a strange statement for Jesus to make. Because in the big scheme of God's Word and redemptive history, Lot's wife seems to be a particularly unimportant character. Um, she is... Really, it seems of so little importance, we don't even know her name. We simply know her as Lot's wife. Yet Jesus says we are to remember her. So we wonder, why? Well, we have to understand the context of this statement to understand why we should remember Lot's wife. In Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Luke 17, in the part we're looking at, Jesus is talking about His return, what it will be like when he comes back, and he describes it as a day of sudden judgment. Look at verse 26. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and all the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, and they were building. But on that day... That Lot left Sodom, it rained down fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So when Jesus returns and judgment comes, it is going to be a sudden thing. It is going to be a day like every other day. People are going to get up, they're going to go on about their business, they're going to do what they've always done, and then suddenly... Judgment is going to fall. And this judgment is going to separate the righteous from the wicked. Look at verse 34. And I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding in the same place. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. 
And responding, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. So it's going to be a day when the sudden judgment comes, and it will also be a day of separation. It, it separates the righteous from the wicked. So in light of this, in light of the fact Jesus will return suddenly without warning and bring judgment, we're to remember Lot's wife. In light of the fact Jesus will return and bring a sudden separation between the righteous and the wicked, we are to remember Lot's wife. But again, we wonder why. Why remember Lot's wife? What is her part in this? Well, the story of Lot's wife is mostly told through Lot. And Lot's story begins in Genesis 13, where Abraham begins to follow God's leading and goes to where God wants him to go. And he takes Lot with him. Now, over time, Abraham accumulates a great deal of wealth and becomes a very wealthy man. Now, this is all the result of God's blessings upon him. Well, God's blessings on Abraham spill over to his nephew, Lot, to such an extent that they have too many animals for the land where they are trying to live together. So Abraham, as the, the elder of the family, could have said, I'm going this way, you go that way, but he doesn't. In an act of, of graciousness and kindness, Abraham gives Lot the first choice. And Lot lifts up his eyes and he looks out at the well-watered plains and he says, I, I want to go that way. And he goes towards the land of Sodom. Now, as he begins to move in that direction and he moves towards Sodom, God's word reminds us that, that Sodom is filled with wicked men. Who were against the Lord. And, and, and at first that could just seem like a, an incidental detail. But the next time we meet Lotum, he is in Genesis 19 and he's not moving towards Sodom. He has moved into Sodom. And by all appearances, at this point, Lot is assimilated. He has become one of them. He has fully indoctrinated himself into the culture of Sodom. And the assimilation of Lot to the culture of Sodom is seen in three ways. Genesis 19.1, we find Lot sitting at the gate. Again, to our way of thinking, that could seem like an incidental detail. But in the culture of the time, the gates of the city is where the important people of the city gathered. It's where the businessmen were. It's where, say, the city council would meet. It's where people gathered to make important decisions. And Lot was there among the important people of the city. As far as the people of Sodom were concerned, Lot was one of them. Secondly, Genesis 19 and 7. He refers to the wicked men who came to, to rape the angels. Of course, we're familiar with the story, so I don't have to get into it. But if you're not, what happens is the angels God sends go to the city. Lot takes them in. The wicked men of Sodom want to, to come and rape the angels thinking they are just men. And as Lot begins to address them, to talk to them, to try to talk them out of it, he, he calls them my brethren. Again, significant phrase. And as far as Lot was concerned, he was one of them. And then the third way we see it is in Genesis 19 and 8 when Lot offers to let them rape his virgin daughters. To satisfy their carnal lusts. Lot is so indoctrinated into the culture of Sodom. That he basically shares their values. And their attitudes. And their morals. But God. 
is gracious and amazing. And where he could have left Lot in the city to suffer the judgment that was coming, he didn't. The Bible says the angels take Lot and his family by the hand and lead them out. Now, Lot hesitates. He is so indoctrinated into the culture, he hesitates. And, and, and the, really the picture is almost that the angels hold him and, and drag his family out away from the impending judgment that's coming upon Sodom and the city of Gomorrah. And as they go, they are told, do not look back. I mean, that was the, the one rule. You're saved. Just go and do not look back no matter what you hear. So Lot and his family are leaving the city. They're going back. And as they do, we find Lot's wife looks back. God sends judgment upon her and she becomes a pillar of salt. Now, different commentators have a different idea of what it meant for her to look back. Some say she slowed down and had fallen behind because she didn't really want to leave. Right? They're, they're walking at a good clip. She's slowing down, maybe starting to kind of back up a little bit, thinking about going back. Others say that she had actually already turned around and was going to head back to Sodom. Now, others say that she had turned around and was looking longingly at the city she loved. Now, all are possible. Uh, though I think the last two are the most probable, with the last one being what it actually was. She turned and was looking longingly at the city, intending probably to go back. But you think about it. In Sodom, she was a wealthy wife of an important person. She, too, had, ins- had assimilated to their values and their morals. She would arrive in the land of Zor, where God was sending them with nothing more than what's, whatever they were carrying. They would be vagabonds. They would be nothing. They would have nothing and they would be nothing. And to her way of thinking, she couldn't stand to leave it all behind. And so she turned and looked back at the the sin and the wickedness of the world God was delivering her from. And in that moment, judgment fell upon her. So when Jesus tells us to remember Lot's wife, He's warning us not to, to look back. As Lot's wife looked back. And I think if we're not careful, we can. Because we aren't delivered in exactly the same way they were delivered. But we were delivered from a life of sin. We were delivered from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were delivered from things that we did. And and at the time, we probably really enjoyed those things. And it is entirely possible for us, even as disciples of Jesus, as we're following Jesus away from those things, for our hearts, our flesh, to pull us back. As the song said, this world full of evil allures me. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel the allure of the world of evil? Do you ever feel the pull of the things of the world? And if we're not careful, what we can do is what Lot's wife did. We can begin to look back longingly at where we came from, at what God has done. I've talked to believers, to disciples of Jesus, who when you heard them talk about how they live now versus how they lived before, 
it sounded like Jesus had stolen all of the happiness and joy out of their life. They missed their life of sin. They missed those things that they had come out of. They, they longed for them again. And, and the reality is, almost without exception, all of those who felt that way went back. They turned and they looked back. Now, they didn't become a pillar of salt, but they moved away from Christ and they moved back into the world. Jesus' warning is if we look back as Lot's wife looked back, we may run the risk of suffering the same fate she suffered. Rather than escaping the judgment of God, we'll be consumed by it. We cannot look back and remain faithful to Jesus at the same time. Secondly, the children of Ephraim turned back. Turn to Psalm chapter 78. should be page 448 in your pew Bible if you have one of those. Psalm 78 and verse 9 in particular. says, the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back on the day of battle. Now, the best I can tell, there is no one specific battle or event this verse refers to. Instead, it is a sort of summary of what happened when the people of Ephraim decided they wouldn't finish the job of conquering the promised land. Now, Again, we just finished Joshua, what, last year, late last year? If you remember the story, they, as a, as a nation, they fought and conquered a huge portion of the land. And then when the basics of the land were conquered, each tribe was sent out to finish conquering what was left. And so they were supposed to go to the country allotted to them, the part allotted to them, and they were to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. And, and yet, what we find with the, the children of Ephraim, and, and they weren't alone, but they're the ones mentioned here, is that rather than drive the Canaanites out of the land, they turn back in the day of battle here, and Judges 1 tells us they, they allowed the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer to live among them. Now, we aren't told why they turned back in the day of battle. However, the psalmist does tell us that they were archers equipped with bows. So they, they were armed. They were armed with good weapons. Probably the, I mean, our, the bows and arrows were some of the greatest weapons they had at the time. So the wording here suggests the reason for turning back has nothing to do with the inability to drive out the enemy. But right? it wasn't because the enemy was greater than them. Not only did they have bows and arrows, but... The book of Joshua and the early parts of Judges remind us God was on their side. The problem wasn't that they couldn't. It was just that they chose not to. Why? Why would they choose to turn back in the day of battle? Well, I was thinking about it. Maybe it was too hard. I mean, we do know from studying the book of Joshua that while God gave them the victory, they always had to fight. They always had to do something. And so maybe they just determined, gosh, this is going to take, going to be really hard and we don't want to put forth the effort. We'll just find a way to make it work with them here. Maybe they thought it would take too long. 
Again, some of the battles they fought, they fought from, they marched all night, fought all day, and fought into the night. Maybe they just thought it's going to take too long to do it, and, and I'm tired of fighting. I just want to move into my house and settle down. Maybe it just seemed it would be unnecessary to totally remove all the people of the land. I mean, they had broken the back of the big cities, and they were conquered. How much trouble could the people in the city of Gezer actually do to them? Maybe it was that. Or maybe they just worked out a nice compromise with the people that benefited both of them. We'll let you stay here. You cut wood for us. Something along those lines. We just don't know for sure. But what we do know is they turned their back in the day of battle. But we also know the result of their turning back. Look at verse 10. They did not keep the covenant of God and they refused to walk in his law. So as they turned back on the day of battle, they they stopped following God. And their stopping following God is. Is really there are two ways they did this or two things that happened, two results from this first or two reasons. First is turning back in the day of battle was itself a forsaking of God's covenant and a refusal to walk in His law. God had specifically said, make no treaties with them. Don't allow them to stay in the land. Drive them all out. So when they determined to turn their back in the day of battle and let them live among them, it was a violation of God's covenant that they had made. It was a turning aside of following what God had said. So just by doing it, just by giving up in the battle and turning back, they stopped following God. I think a second result of this is disobedience begets disobedience. Once they broke God's covenant in turning back in the day of battle and refused to walk in His law by making a treaty with the people of the land, it becomes much easier to disobey God in other areas. I mean, if you already have a treaty with the people to live at peace among one another, why not let your children marry their children? I mean, God has already said not to. We know that, but we've already made a peace treaty with them. They seem like good people. We'll go ahead and let their children marry our children. And if your children are marrying their children, and they worship different gods than you do, why not go ahead and see how how they worship their gods? I mean, we maybe we can worship together and we'll go to to worship Bell sometimes and maybe they can come and worship Yahweh sometimes and and we'll see how it works. And well, if you're already seeing how they worship their gods, you might as well look and see if there's anything they do you like. I mean, what if they sing kind of songs you like and you can change Bell and change it for Yahweh Or what if there's an altar they use that that you think is really snazzy looking? You might as well take it and and bring it in. Right? And if you're adding worship of their gods to your religious life, you might as well... See how it goes? Disobedience begets disobedience. It's that way in our lives. One little compromise we make here, it doesn't just stay there. It it begets a different one. You know, the Bible talks about Satan getting a foothold... In our hearts. Well, a foothold is a military term. And it doesn't it refers to what you do when you when you clear a trench line. 
when you clear a, a trench line like they did in World War One and World War Two, you, you get a foothold and you, you clear a section out and you open it up and, and you and your guys get in there, but you don't get it just to take this one section of the trench. The goal is to get the foothold so you take the section so you can take another section and you can take another section until eventually you've taken the whole trench line. Well, that's what Satan does. When he gets a foothold in our heart, he convinces us to disobey in one area, to compromise in one place. It's never going to stay right there. He's not going to be content with a partial foothold. He wants control of the whole. And so the disobedience begets disobedience begets disobedience. And we stop following God like they did. Secondly, they forgot God. Look at verse 11. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. Once they began to turn away from God and stop following God, they kind of naturally began to forget what God had done for them. In the past, that you get to where they you can't see what can't remember what God has done in the past. You can't see what God's doing in the present. And I think this is especially true when things become difficult. Things become difficult. They begin to think things like, well, from our perspective, we haven't really done anything all that bad. And, and yet God is allowing or doing all of this stuff. And, and really, when you think about it, what has God ever actually done for me in my life to begin with? Right? I mean, again, we're told what God had done. He performed wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the land of Zoan. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up in a heap. He led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He split the rocks in the wilderness, gave them plenty to drink from the ocean depths. He brought forth streams from the rock, and he made waters to run like rivers. And after they had turned away from God, they began to forget all God had done for them in the past. And they get to where they couldn't see what God is doing in the present. Like the children of Ephraim, we, we do face a temptation to turn back in the day of battle. But again, like the children of Ephraim, we are equipped the weapons for spiritual warfare, the promises of God. So why do we turn back? Well, perhaps it's too hard. I mean, let's face it, spiritual battles are tough. The world, the flesh, and the devil aren't shrinking violets who scream and cry and run away at the first sign of our opposition to them. They fight back and they fight dirty. And there are just times where it seems easier to turn back in the day of battle than to keep on fighting. And the lesson for us is, is don't do that. Perhaps it takes too long. Again, spiritual battles are tough, but they're also long. Our, our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are playing the long game. Right? They have eternity. Certainly all of our life to try to destroy us and lead us astray. They aren't going to give up because we fight hard today. That they're just going to, to wait until a more opportune time and they're going to come back. We see this in the life of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke 
chapter 4 where Jesus is tempted by the devil and wins. That whole section ends by saying the devil left him for a more opportune time. They were playing the long game then and they're playing the long game now. There are times when we fought and we fought and we fought and we fought and it seems like a never-ending battle. And we think, I'd just as well give up. I'll turn back in the day of battle. The lesson for us is don't. And perhaps maybe sometimes it seems unnecessary to totally remove this issue, whatever this issue may be, from our lives. We're not really much different than the children of Ephraim were. It's easy for us to rationalize, justify, or minimize the compromise we have with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our our reasons range from, well, everyone else is doing it. I mean, culture is everyone. It's like, I'm just different than, I can't, I don't want to be different than everyone else. It, It could be, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, the news is like really filled with bad things, isn't it? And and we know people that are doing really bad things, far worse things than we're doing. Compromises they're giving into are far more significant than ours. It's, it's easy to say, well, in comparison to them, it's not that big of a deal. It's easy to to come to adapt to the world's view of things, right? Society has changed. I mean, those of us that are a little older than others, we know the world's different than it used to be. There are things that are common and acceptable and normal now that when we were younger, we could not have imagined would be okay. So society has changed. Everyone else is okay with it. Even, gosh... You pick an abomination, sin, and iniquity. You can find a church somewhere that tells you that's okay. It's ridiculously easy to come up with reasons while we don't have to completely remove the issue from our lives. The lesson is don't. Because that's turning back in the day of battle. Whatever the reason we give of turning back in the day of battle, the result is the same. We do not keep covenant with Jesus and we refuse to walk in his law. We can't turn back and compromise with the world, the flesh and the devil and claim to be faithfully walking with Jesus at the same time. Book of Amos says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? Right. Jesus is is going in a particular direction. And he's not going to change that direction because of society. And he's not going to change that direction because we want to go another direction. He's going his direction. And if we want to go with him, the only choice is to go with him. And any turning back on our part is turning away from Jesus. And as we turn away from Jesus, we begin to forget his deeds. I could, and you know them too, you know people too. Maybe they've been raised in church, they they should know better. And if you were to ask them, what good thing has God done for you? 
mean, they, they just, God it just has not ever done anything for them. Ever. But, but He has. The issue isn't God hasn't done for them. The issue is they have turned away and so they have forgotten what God has done. You would ask them, what is something God's doing in your life right now? They, they couldn't point to anything. But it's not that God's not there and God's not at work. It's that they've turned away and they can't see. This is always the result. Make no mistake, if you find someone who claims God has never done anything for them, God is not at work in their life, you find someone that has forgotten the deeds of the Lord because they have turned away from Him. Always. We cannot turn back and remain faithful to Jesus at the same time. So Lot's wife looked back, the children of Ephraim turned back, and Demas went back. One of the more tragic ones, up to my way of thinking, is Demas. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul. Everything we know about Demas, we know from three passages of Scripture, all written by Paul. Colossians, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and Demas does also. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, uh, Starchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then he mentions Demas one more time. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 4. Page 916 if you're using a pew Bible. Second Timothy 9 and 10. Paul writing about four years after the what he says in Colossians, writes to his protege Timothy, telling him to make every effort to come to him soon. In verse 9, and here's one of the reasons for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Now, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. The appearance is they have gone in service to Christ and left Paul alone to do ministry. But Demas, Demas deserted Paul because he loved this present world. There's a lot we don't know about Demas. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how long he had been a disciple of Jesus. We know at least about four years probably. We don't know how long he had been Paul's companion again. At least four years. But after four or five years of being Paul's companion, he, he deserts him because he's fallen in love with the things of the world. And, and this is not just a desertion of Paul. But it's a desertion of Christ. And you say, well, he just left Paul. It doesn't say he left Christ. Yet, if you look at the Bible as a whole, we're told not to love the things of the world. Nor the things in the world. Love the world nor the things in the world. If, the, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but from the world. 
This world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God continues forever. We cannot love God and love the things of the world at the same time. Because the love of one pushes out the love of the other. Similar to Jesus saying you cannot serve God and and mammon. You serve one, you end up hating the other. And when the love of the world fills our heart, it pushes out all of our love for God. Therefore, we see Demas as a warning about going back. We don't know a lot, as I said, but we know enough to know he should have known better. He spent four to five years with the Apostle Can you just fathom the amount of insights about God's Word he must have gleaned just from hearing Paul talk, watching Paul write Scripture? Can you imagine? I mean, you've read your Bible. You know the miracles God wrought through Paul. Can you imagine seeing something like that on almost a daily basis? For years, the sick healed, the lame made to walk, the dead come back, demons cast out, people set free, revivals, people turn from worshiping witchcraft and all sorts of demonic stuff to worshiping Christ, churches planted, and then after four or five years just saying, I am done. Demas, whatever else he was, was someone who should have known better. He, he was even more someone who, who had. I mean, again, we know from Paul's life, Paul had very little tolerance for laziness. He had very little tolerance for those who weren't all in. Remember the story about Mark? Mark went back at one point, and then later Barnabas is like, I think we should take Mark. And Paul's like, no, no, he left us. We can't, I mean... So Demas labored for the kingdom. Demas probably, I would guess, suffered for the kingdom. Right? I mean, traveling with Paul wasn't easy. Everything wasn't all healings and demons being cast out. It was also rocks being thrown at you and let down over the walls in a basket at night. Demas had labored, had seen Paul, had probably preached the gospel. And yet in the midst of serving Jesus alongside Paul... Demas fell in love with the world and he turned back. And and I can't help but wondering if Demas was like Lot's wife. If he just kept looking back. I mean, why Thessalonica? Did he go back there? Is that where he was from? Is he looking back at his hometown and going, boy, all my my friends are living it up and partying in a certain way and and I, I miss being a part of them? We don't know. But looking back led to turning back. And he deserted Christ for the sake of the world. We cannot turn back and remain faithful to Jesus at the same time. It's easy enough to start almost anything. Our our family started a 
fitness challenge because of something Kelly wanted us to do. So it's all of us. It's all of us who are here, Kayla and Joe in Missouri. All of us are working out and trying to eat and being healthy. We're in the first week, right? It's easy. It's easy at first, but it's supposed to go till Thanksgiving. Well, that's a that's a long challenge. It's easy enough to say we can do it today. We can do it this week. But it's it's a month or two before we get to Thanksgiving. It's a whole different ball game to stick it out till then. It's the same with following Jesus. It's easy to, to come to an altar and pray a prayer. It's easy to raise a hand or get baptized. It, it's easy to say, I'm going to live for Christ. But it's difficult to live it out day in and day out. And Jesus was honest about this. He told us it was going to be hard. He said we'd suffer and we'd be tempted and we would face trials And yet he said we must endure to the end. He'd be hated by all because of my name. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Perseverance is not optional. Not if we want to experience the full and final salvation Jesus offers. So the key truth from all of this tonight is this. We cannot look back, turn back, or go back and remain faithful to Jesus. We must keep, as Hebrews 12 says, our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith. There is nothing that lies behind us is remotely as good as what lies before us. We must fight our flesh to the death until we believe that. And we must persevere to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Help us, Father, to be faithful and to the end. Help us not to, to look back turn back or to go back. Father, give us the strength to keep going. Father, let us recognize any sort of looking back or going back or turning back. It it is unfaithfulness to Jesus. Lord, help us to see signs of spiritual problems when we can't remember what You've done for us. Let us Recognize that's a sign something is not right in my heart, in my life. When we can't see your work right now in our lives, let us recognize that is a sign things are not right in our hearts, in our lives. The enemy would blind us. The enemy would make us think you have been so mean. You have kept us from so much. And you have not really done much for us at all. Let the spirit within us rise up and call that a lie. A damnable lie from the pits of hell itself. And let the spirit within us continually remind us the words that say every good gift we have 
everything we have that is good, pleasant, and right is a gift from you. Make us to remember your goodness toward our lives. Let us see what you're doing. And let this inspire us to persevere. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. All right, we're dismissed.